everyone, and welcome to Wise Brussels Voices and our series on women and leadership. I'm Ilana Beitel. I'm a member of Wise Brussels, that's Women in International Security, and I'm your host for this conversation with people who are helping to advance our organization's goals of empowering women in the fields of peace, security, defense, and leadership. This is a special episode in a number of ways. Special because it marks International Women's Day 2022. Special because we're living in a new reality of conflict with a horrendous war in Ukraine and the increasing isolation of Russia. And above all, special because we have with us Rose Gottemuller, former NATO Deputy Secretary General and currently Steve C. Hazy, lecturer at the Stanford University Center for International Security and Cooperation and Research Fellow at the Hoover Institution. Welcome, Rose. It's both an honor and a pleasure to have you with us on the podcast. And as ever, even though it's not a regular podcast, as I said, it would be great if you could start out and tell us just a little bit about your inspiring background that most women would love to know about. Thank you so much, Ilana. It's um, a pleasure to be with you, even in such sad days. And I do want to say how much I am glad to be able to talk to all my friends and colleagues in Wise Brussels and in the wider WISE family. Uh, I've always loved the organization and want to continue to support it in every way I can. My career has been, as we say in Washington, a, a revolving door career. It started out in the think tank world. I worked at Rand Corporation for over a decade, went from there to work for President Clinton, returned to the think tank world to go to the International Institute for Strategic Studies in London as the deputy director then came back again to work for President Clinton. And after that, while President Bush was in office, uh, spent eight years at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace, three years of which were spent in Moscow Center. I was honored to work for President Obama for almost uh, the eight years of his uh, time in office, first as Assistant Secretary for Arms Control and International Security and the negotiator of the New START Treaty afterwards as the Undersecretary for Arms Control and International Security, where I had the good luck to be able to work with countries across the globe on problems of nonproliferation, peace, and security. So it was a great time working for President Obama, but after that, I catapulted into a new world for me, and that was the world of being the Deputy Secretary General of NATO and worked with the NATO allies for three years from 2016 to 2019. That was a tremendous honor. Also a lot of hard work, but great colleagues in NATO. So I miss Brussels. Uh, I miss you all and uh, hope before too long we'll be able to freely travel and see each other frequently. Well, we very much hope so. I should point out before we carry on that we are recording this episode on March 7th just one day before broadcast, due to the speed of events around us. Um, So it's only going to be lightly edited, and therefore um, we are trying to keep up with events as they unfold. Let's turn back and explain about International Women's Day a bit and how we link it to the events currently. So if every International Women's Day is special, um, I would say this one of 2022 has got a certain historical resonance with our current events in Ukraine and Russia. So a short history lesson, International Women's Day actually started in February 1908 in the US. It was a protest of women garment workers in New York City. The idea spread to Europe, but the real turning point was in 1917 in Russia, 
It was a massive demonstration led by Russian feminists, which began in Petrograd, St. Petersburg, the then Russian capital, on what was February 23rd, 1917, according to Russia's then Julian calendar, but was March 8th, according to the Western Gregorian calendar, and that is the date that has stuck. The demonstration brought out a wide array of women, from upper-class ladies to peasants, and by the afternoon, once factories were closed, many tens of thousands of women textile workers. There were banners calling for food and better wages, as well as patriotic support for the Russian soldiers at the front. This was 1917, in the midst of the First World War, and Russia was still a combatant. The demonstrations continued for days afterwards, but that initial day proved to be a link in the chain of events that led to the abdication of Tsar Nicholas II and the Russian Revolution. It was, in effect, the first day of the Russian Revolution. In recognition of its importance, Vladimir Lenin, founder of Russia's Communist Party, declared Women's Day an official Soviet holiday in 1917. Celebration of the day spread primarily to communist and socialist states, and it was only in 1977 that the UN General Assembly invited all member states to celebrate International Women's Day. And since then, it has become a much broader global event. So, Rose, if we can take you back to your days at Carnegie in Moscow, what is International Women's Day like in Russia and around what we knew then as the USSR? It's ironic in a way that International Women's Day on March 8th is also bracketed with Armed Forces Day on February 23rd, the day before the Russian Federation this year invaded the independent country of Ukraine. But it is very much a family time in Russia between the 23rd and March 8th, two major holidays, oftentimes leading to a four-day weekend in each case. It's a time when people uh, get together with their families, spend time, you know, just quietly enjoying themselves in one way or another, the last days of winter often. And uh, for women, actually, again, ironically, not so much fun because uh, if any of you have spent time in the Russian Federation, you know that um, men don't lift their finger in the kitchen. So many women complained while I was there about International Women's Day being a time when they had to work to cook enormous meals and then clean up afterwards. So it was not much enjoyed. But the point I wanted to really underscore here is that it is an important family occasion in Russia. And to me, that's one of the great tragedies of Vladimir Putin's invasion of Ukraine, that he has broken apart normal life in Russia too. It's an enormous tragedy for the Ukrainian people and the Ukrainian nation I just saw this morning that 1.7 million Ukrainians have now fled the country and we are expecting many more to become refugees. The civilian uh, quarters have not opened up and the Russians are cynically saying that they should come to Russia or they should come to Belarus if they are fleeing Kharkiv or Mariupol or Kyiv. And this is all a tremendous cynical action by the Russians. So I don't want to in any way gainsay or downplay what's happening in Ukraine. But I do want to say as well that for Russians, their normal life is being burst asunder as well. Absolutely. Rose, how do you think we could reach out, though, to Russians? We'll talk a lot about Ukraine in a minute. But if we can look back again slightly historically, is it fair to say that when the Cold War ended, 
we didn't reach out to the Russian people maybe as much as we could have reached out, and we only reached out to the Russian leadership, and therefore it was much easier for the likes of Putin to come in and convince them later on that the West didn't care about them, the West didn't stand by them. It will be important to try to do so, and I have to say it's going to be harder than it was just a week ago because uh, the internet really is being shut down increasingly by Western service providers who are being asked and uh, responding to sanctions against Russia to withdraw their services from Russia. So communications with Russia are going to be more difficult, but I think we are going to have to look for ways to communicate in every way that we can, because actually that is one of the great aspects of uh, the period since the breakup of the Soviet Union is that ties with the Russian Federation, with the Russian people have blossomed in so many ways, maybe not in the public diplomacy way you are talking about, Ilana. You're right. For many Western governments, Russia went right onto the back burner and didn't get a whole lot of attention. But in terms of people being able to travel, being able to send their children abroad to go to school and uh people from Western countries and foreign countries going the other direction. I just heard last week about some colleagues whose daughter was at Georgetown and she was at St. Petersburg University, State University for their longstanding Russian language program, but they had to bring all of them home because of what is going on in Russia as well and the crisis that has ensued from the Ukrainian invasion. So I'm afraid the ties are going to be very tight no, let me say it again a different way. The ties are going to be very difficult uh, in coming times, and we're going to have to be very imaginative about how we go about it. But I do think it will be important to try to keep uh, our outreach to Russia as well, not only at official levels, but also on a people-to-people level. Let me go into slightly more detail here. Where do you think, and let's not be too historical, where do you think um, this all went wrong Um, In an article that you have uh, written, which is about to come out in Foreign Affairs, you noted that Putin has a Manichaean world vision. Where did that come from and how did he manage to um, get it to be the dominant one in Moscow currently? Well, Ilona, I'm not sure it's the dominant one in Moscow, but it certainly is the dominant one with Vladimir Putin and, and his immediate cohort, those around him who are now ruling the country. And I think partially it has come from the isolation of these COVID years. Putin has pulled his group closer and closer around him, existing in a bubble where other information, other sources of advice don't seem to have been permeating. And so uh, he has become convinced in the last years. And we all know about this so-called 6,000 word treatise he wrote last summer as one of my colleagues here says, it's almost like he spent uh, months in the basement of the Kremlin in the archives, digging through old historical documents and old maps, and really, you know, really coming up with this idea that Ukraine must be returned to the Slavic heartland. Belarus, Russia, and Ukraine are one, and they all must exist together. So I think it is the notion of of this Slavic heartland that has driven him so firmly, but also his sense that the breakup of the Soviet Union was a great historic tragedy, as he has said. The greatest of the 20th century, I'm not sure about that, but in any event, uh, it comes a lot, I think, the current situation from, from the attitude of this one man and the cohort around him who are leading Russia these days. It points also to the lack of real democracy in Russia, that there are not sources 
of other opinion there and certainly other uh, ways of guiding the government. He, I think, feels disrespect from the West. Do you think we disrespected him? Well, I don't know. He just had a summit with Joe Biden in June. <laughs> and I've seen, you know, leader after leader making the trapes to, to Moscow to try to turn him away from this path. Uh, in the last week before the invasion, President Macron and Chancellor Schultz both trying to meet with him and turn him back from this path of invading Ukraine. So he certainly has uh, gotten the world's attention by this behavior. Maybe it was the fact that for a number of years, Russia was on the back burner. And since the invasion of Crimea in 2014, Russia has been under some uh, severe sanctions, not nearly as severe as those it is under today. But I think he felt that, well, we don't need those people. We don't need the West and its economy. We can do it ourselves here in Russia. So a lot of factors have contributed to the way that Putin has turned into a very, well, you win, I lose, I win, you lose type of leader at the moment. Some people say that's associated with the Russian character. There's no such thing as a win-win relationship in Russia. I'm not sure. I've seen plenty of win-win outcomes in the past. Huh. I don't see now where we get back to one, but I am hoping for it. It's interesting that you put it that way because one of the things that um, historians of Russia often say is, oh, you've got to understand the Russian mentality, that they don't understand borders, they only have the lands around them, and that's why they're so neurotic about security arrangements, which may indeed be correct. However, the rest of the world appears, or at least the rest of Europe and uh, large parts of the rest of the world have moved on from the idea that your border is your most dangerous place. We're in a globalized, interdependent uh, world. Um, why do you think he specifically and Russia in general find it so difficult to move on from that position? I think it has a great deal to do with disregard for the rule of law, Ilana. And that's one point we haven't stressed, that the notion uh, that... Russia can invade a neighboring country and with a very flimsy excuse to do so, this, as people have been wringing their hands to say, shouldn't happen in the 21st century. We were all agreeing that territorial integrity and sovereignty are absolute principles that need to be respected, et cetera, et cetera. Although, of course, there are many examples to the contrary. Uh, but nevertheless, the notion that in, in every way you can, you, tr you strive for territorial integrity and sovereignty, and every country strives to implement those principles uh, as a matter of international law, that simply is disregarded now, it seems, in the Kremlin. And for that reason, I think we all need to strive now ourselves to bolster those international principles and the rule of law, because if not, we are facing mayhem. Presumably, that's exactly what Putin would want, which is that international law and indeed the international um, order would break down. His whole point was that the European order was no longer suitable, according to him. And in his disregard for so many conventions and international humanitarian law, in fact, most aspects of law, international law, um, it suggests that he wants to break down the world order. What do you think we can do to carry on stopping that? Well, Putin's behavior has done a lot, I think, to bolster global 
certainty that in fact we do need to bolster the rule of law and strengthen it. The meeting at the United Nations General Assembly with a very rare vote that went strongly against Putin and the Russian Federation last week, I think is a, is a very signal of that, that countries around the world, it's not just Europe, it's not just the United States, the countries around the world are putting up their hands and saying, no, if we go this direction, it will be chaos, it will be mayhem, it will be violence, it will be war. We cannot be going in this direction. And again, Putin's memory of history seems very selective, but this settlement that came out of World War II that uh, the Russians, uh, at least Russian officials often complain about was much to the advantage of Russia as well. It, the Soviet Union at the time became a member of the UN Security Council with a veto. Uh, all of the arrangements that uh, were made afterwards in international organizations Russia became a member, became uh, an important player in many of them. And so why now suddenly this is uh, a unipolar uh, act by the United States to force these kinds of rules and principles on other countries of the world? It's, it's nonsensical because from the very beginning, the USSR was a part of that settlement after World War II. I'm really glad you say that because that is not very well known. Again, we're going back into history, but it is real history, which is that they were part of the order. They were sitting at the table, as opposed to China, by the way, which wasn't, which was only added um, as a fifth member of the Security Council, um, I think largely in an attempt to balance out Russia. Um, but it is absolutely correct that they were part and parcel of the creation of the system. And they have been, for the past 20 years, um, problematic within that, at least for the last 11 or 12 since the start of the Arab Spring. Um, Russia has been a permanent member of the Security Council, which once it uh, helped, decided to help the Assad regime in Syria, has been bombing civilians there. And we have been doing nothing about it. Um, but of that, another time. Can we move to Ukraine? How did Ukraine find itself in this situation, do you think? It's so interesting to me that Ukraine from the very outset seemed really ready to move, I'm not going to say to the West, but to move toward European institutions. And people are forgetting this now, but the seizure of Crimea flowed out uh, of the Maidan revolution in 2014, beginning in 2013, when the president then Yanukovych uh, refused at the last minute under Russian pressure to sign an association agreement with the European Union. It was all about joining the European Union eventually and the economic prosperity presumably that that membership would bring. That's what started all this. Ukraine really was trying to move in every way it could to the West. It was interesting back then, I was the undersecretary for arms control and international security, visited Ukraine, frequently. And at that point, NATO was on scarcely anyone's lips. It was all about EU economic health development, trying to make sure that Ukraine in the end of the day was a healthy and prosperous place to live. They had a lot of work to do. Uh, unfortunately, corruption ran rampant, still uh, has for the years ensuing, but nevertheless, Ukraine's idea was that they wanted to be part of those European institutions. And NATO membership, uh, of course, was on the table from 2008 and the Bucharest summit. 
meaning of NATO, but uh, more importantly, I would say for the public in Ukraine, their interest in joining NATO only uh, firmed up after the seizure of Crimea and the destabilization of the Donbass in 2014. That's very true, Rose. Um, Even today, just before the war broke out, there were still a lot of measurements according to which uh, Ukraine was not suited to yet join the EU, largely on issues of corruption and rule of law. But it had made um, some significant um, steps in that direction, but clearly not enough. Though now we're looking at it from a completely different direction in terms of its need to uh, um, and our desire to support our being the EU um, to support its membership and to support its desire to be a democratic state. But then isn't this really the core of the matter, that we're looking at a double issue here throughout this whole conflict, which makes it interesting, which is it's both about the sheer destruction and the outrageous idea that one state is invading another. And at another level, it's a a very ideological uh, conflict between autocracy, dictatorship on the one hand, and the idea that one state can decide for another state what it wants to do, and another state and another group say, no, 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 every state is entitled to define itself and to define which way it wants to go and which alliances it wants to keep and where it wants to be. And do you think we will come to a place, and here we're moving on much more to maybe the future-looking issues, do you think we can come to a state in which we can resolve both of those? Or do you think we're about to enter into a position in which not only will there be extended conflict, but we will not be able to really come to terms with each other on these ideological issues? Well, my experience over my years and and time uh, working in and out of Washington and in different places in the world, including in Moscow, is that in the end of the day, although sometimes so-called democratic principles are are scorned because uh, they seem too idealistic, too impractical, too too difficult to implement, in the end of the day, uh, they are like a magnet that is pulling people and pulling countries in their direction and autocracy doesn't win out in the long run. So maybe I'm sounding a bit idealistic myself at this moment, but I don't think that autocracy uh, in the end of the day can can replicate itself in uh, a way that is stable. You know, all uh, dictatorships, autocracies seem to come to an end and then the countries try again at, at democracy and letting the people have a role in making decisions about their own fate and their own governance. Sadly, again and again, we see in places uh, in uh, Africa, in Latin America, other places in the world that again and again, democracy fails and the autocrats return. But I just want to convey the notion that every time uh, a tyrant fails, then the democratic principles seem to assert themselves, at least for a golden instant. That's very, very true. But it is relevant here to examine this issue, I think, because if one can talk of a core issue that the Russians apparently had, or at least Putin apparently had, it's about new security arrangements for Europe. And do you think we can separate those two issues off, just have a very cold technical security arrangement agreement or something like that, and let's leave principles aside and everybody go away and do what they want, a la the Cold War? Well, we may be heading in that direction. I certainly hope not. But um, look, 
Ilani, even Putin himself sustains the trappings of democracy. It seems like it has to be something that legitimizes a state to have elections, even if they should be sham elections. So I'm in no way uh, endorsing his approach here, but there does seem to be something basic about this notion that uh, that democratic principles are important, <laughs> even where autocrats are concerned. But coming to your other question, it seems to be getting at the point that uh, people have begun to think about, is there a way to settle this conflict on some terms that will, that will help uh, to end the violence, the tremendous loss of life. I just heard from, again, the UK seems to be keeping these numbers rather well. Over 400 civilians confirmed dead in the conflict in Ukraine, in addition to thousands uh, of military. So it's really, I think, necessary to end the violence uh, as soon as we can, get Russia and Ukraine to the negotiating table and talking at a high level. I welcome the announcement from Turkey today that the Ukrainian and Russian foreign ministers will be meeting in Turkey in coming days. I hope that meeting goes forward because that's the right way to begin to get to some resolution of this conflict. Ukraine's going to have to put the offer forward as to what it can stomach uh, among the really ridiculous, I think, and in many ways unacceptable demands of Russia. I have heard the foreign minister, Kuleba, and also the president, Mr. Zelensky, begin to proffer the notion of some kind of neutrality status for Ukraine. Again, Ukraine has to be front and center in making uh, up its mind as to what it can stomach at this juncture. But I think once it does begin to move forward with a negotiating position, we need to do everything we can to support Ukraine to get to uh, the right answers for Ukraine and for its people. That's the first point uh, I'd like to make. But then, you know, looking down the road, yes, we need to refurbish the European security architecture. That's what we were thinking about before this invasion started. Finally, NATO and the United States were ready to get serious about some of Russia's proposals to refurbish the European security disorder. Again, some of them were untenable proposals, ridiculous proposals, such as NATO should move its borders back to its 1997 uh, borders. Um, no, that's not going to happen. But some other ideas that Russia had put on the table, simple things like good military to military communications and contacts at all levels. NATO and the United States are you know, saying are worth looking at. So yes, we need to start some work again on the European security order, but first we have to resolve and stop the fighting. Of that, there's absolutely no doubt. I'm constantly reminded when these issues come up how difficult it is to define what Europe is. It's always part of the problem. Where does Europe end? We always know where it starts somewhere at the Atlantic coast, but where does it end? At the Urals? At where exactly? You know, I have just come back from Istanbul and one side of it is in Europe and the other side of it is in Asia. But for the rest of it, we don't really know. And I think that's part of our core problem. 
Um, I'm not suggesting everybody should sit down and define where Europe is and where it ends and where it begins, but clearly we're having that in a certain extent imposed upon us because we're having debates now about Georgia, Moldova, as long alongside um, Ukraine joining Europe. And that is part, I suspect, of what Russia is talking about, not just in the sense of its sphere of influence, which is such a passé concept as to be beyond words, but um, its sense of neighbourhood. Where does it belong? Maybe all of this is about Russia's own sense of, you know, it's not sure where it belongs and it wants to be everywhere and we should all understand and respect that rather like a spoiled little child, but that's something else. Rose, moving to the more core issue of what you specialised in for so many years, which is, of course, the nuclear one, um, where do we go from there? Because, you know, we know that um, there's been a threat by um, Russia that it may do something on the nuclear front. It's taken over Chernobyl. It's taken over another nuclear power station. It's threatening to take over all of them. What should we be doing on the nuclear issue? And how can we look ahead on that one too, in terms of negotiation? Yes, let me just comment that at the moment, uh, Putin and his coterie have this bizarre notion in mind that Ukraine is striving for a nuclear weapon, recognizing that that is infeasible. Ukraine simply doesn't have the fissile material available to make a nuclear bomb anytime soon. They are now complaining that they could build a radiological weapon, uh, which all of this, to my mind, is just nuts, to be honest with you. They've gone to the length of destroying a neutron center in Kharkiv that was designed for basic science research and also for uh, producing sources for cancer treatment. This is heartbreaking to me because I was there in 2014 when we cut the ribbon on that center. It was meant to be uh, a return for Ukraine giving up the last of its highly enriched uranium. So again here, this is a bitter irony that Ukraine gave up all its fissile material that could produce bombs, ended up with ability to treat its, its um, patients having cancer, and it's now been bombed and destroyed by the Russians. So it's, it's really an absurd situation. Rose, just before you carry on onto the nuclear issue, let us all remember that the first violation of Russia in 2014, when it takes Crimea, was in fact of the Budapest Memorandum, it signed in 1994, which is when uh, Ukraine gave up voluntarily all of its nuclear capability, because during the period of the USSR, a lot of uh, um, the Soviet nuclear capability was in fact kept in Ukraine, hence Chernobyl. And in 1994, Ukraine gave it all up, and the guarantors of this um, agreement were no less than Russia, the US, and the UK. When Russia violated it in 2014, it claimed that the issue wasn't the same, so it hadn't violated anything. I would point out that at that time, the US said that it was terribly sorry, but it hadn't given any security guarantees. It had only agreed to, um, I think it was a commitment, but it wasn't a guarantee. And the UK said, well, if that's what the US is saying, then we're saying the same. So basically, there was a problem way back then already. But just on the nuclear issue, to emphasize that I agree with you entirely, that Ukraine just gave up all its nuclear capability in terms of weapons way back when after the Soviet Union collapsed. 
Yes, it's a, a very uh, it's a tragic situation, really. And not only did Ukraine have significant nuclear warheads deployed on their territory, but also Kazakhstan did, and Belarus, a fewer numbers, but nevertheless, they had uh, nuclear weapons on their territory. Lukashenko is now offering Putin to put them back on Belarusian territory. So we'll see how that unfolds. But uh, that, to my mind, was one of the great, uh, really one of the great steps of consolidating Soviet nuclear capability. So we didn't end up with possibly loose nukes and three new nuclear weapon states under the non-proliferation treaty. So it was a great non-proliferation victory in the end of the day, which the Russians stamped all over in 2014. So as far as uh, the nuclear threats now coming from the Kremlin, I do think we need to be, uh, we need to be very alert to them, uh, but I don't think we need to raise our alert levels. I was admiring very much the way Washington handled it last week, Putin throwing around this language about you know, nuclear, possible nuclear use, nuclear saber rattling, and Washington took steps uh, to keep the rhetoric under control, very careful about declarations, very care careful about other activities. For example, an ICBM test launch last week, they um, put on hold saying they did not want in any way to give any indication of uh, any uh, action by the US strategic nuclear forces, despite the fact that Russia has been exercising their strategic nuclear forces and continues to do so. But let me just mention that uh, I understand that what has happened so far with the, uh, with the nuclear forces of Russia is that they have actually upped the manning in command posts. They have not done anything to change the operational readiness of the strategic nuclear forces, which after all are on high readiness anyway, both the United States and Russia maintain our strategic missiles on very high readiness so that they can launch uh, on warning of an attack. So if Russia somehow decided, this is a horrible thought, but to launch a first strike, the United States would launch on warning of attack. This is um, what we call first strike deterrence that we both are in this uh, terrible state of being on a very high alert so that we both keep each other deterred in that way. It's uh, something that has been, uh, many people consider a tenuous stability, but it has been a stability that has been maintained for many years. Can we negotiate something new with him, do you think? Well, I hope so. The new START treaty remains in force and will remain in force until 2026. I think it uh, is still in the interest of the United States and the Russian Federation and other countries all over the globe that nuclear weapons be kept limited and controlled so that if, and we will in the United States continue to modernize our strategic nuclear forces, build new submarines, build new bombers, etc., that those numbers are limited. They have to stay under the 700 limit on delivery vehicles in the new START treaty. If you do away with all treaties, then we can start another round of nuclear arms racing, which again, is in nobody's interest. And I think, you know, frankly, even though the Chinese are now building up and modernizing, the notion that they and Russia, we, others may join in a round of nuclear arms racing, it takes resources away from the conventional force structures. 
And I don't think militaries are very uh, excited about that notion. They're not usable nuclear weapons. <laughs> At least they haven't been usable. And so uh, much more sensible if you're going to be building up your armed forces to spend those dollars or rubles or whatever on conventional weapons. Rose, we're moving towards the end of our time. I have a question maybe very relevant to um, International Women's Day. The world order, which is about to change, has been changed really by the invasion of Ukraine. The European order was largely negotiated by men. Do you think women could do a better job? I always think women are needed at the negotiating table. There's just no question about it. Uh, women um, have a kind of pragmatism about finding solutions that work for everybody. Um, maybe it comes from dealing with toddlers and teenagers. Uh, you have to find a solution that is both suitable for the child, but also suitable and safe from the perspective of the parents. So I think that women have some special skills in that regard. So yes, I think that once we get around to uh, the negotiating a table again, women really need to be present there. Rose Gautamola, thank you very, very much for joining us on this podcast. It was an absolute pleasure to have you with us. Thank you, Alana. It was great to be with you. That's a wrap on this episode of Wise Brussels Voices. Again, thank you so much to Rose Gautamola. We'd also like to thank our technical team at Free Range Productions and, of course, Florence Fernando, uh, my uh, colleague and friend in creating this podcast. Please continue the discussion with us at Wise Brussels on Twitter, Facebook or LinkedIn. And if you haven't done it yet, subscribe to Wise Brussels Voices and listen to all our episodes on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or your favourite podcast application. Learn more about Wise Brussels on our website, wise-brussels.org. I'm Ilana Betel. Thanks for joining us and stay tuned for more great conversations.